Welcome to the Healthy, Wealthy, and Smart Podcast. I'm your host, Karen Litzy. This is podcast number 212. And in this podcast, I sat down for a great conversation with the founder of the Institute of Motion, Michelle Delcourt. And Michelle is an internationally renowned fitness educator, uh, lecturing at top fitness conferences all over the world. He is the inventor of Viper, a fitness tool created in harmony with the whole body training philosophy that Michelle has always taught. And in this episode, we talk about everything from uh, health and wellness strategies, and that's for anyone, whether you're an allied medical professional, a trainer, yoga, Pilates, um, how to, we also talk about how to effectively communicate with your clients, which is something everybody can use help in, me included. Um, We talk about the quote-unquote world of functional training, the 4Q training model, which is really cool. That's something from the Institute of Motion, um, and so, so much more. And Michelle is just so good at addressing all of the multifaceted aspects of longevity, including the physical, mental, social considerations from the cellular level to the systems level. And it's just, it was a really great conversation. It kind of went off in a way that I wasn't even thinking it was going to go, but that just made it so much better. And I hope to have Michelle back on the episode, back on the podcast very, very soon. And quickly before we get to that podcast, I want to thank audible.com for sponsoring today's episode. All you have to do is go to audibletrial.com slash healthywealthysmart, and you'll get a free download and a free month trial of Audible. I use it all the time. They have 180,000 books. I just finished last week, Being Mortal by Atul Gawande. If you work with people, any people, if, or even if you're just a person, you should definitely go out and read this book. It is, it is fantastic, and he's a wonderful writer. So again, go to audibletrial.com slash healthywealthysmart and pick up your free book and free download. And I also want to say congratulations to Candlebox. So the uh, Brian Quinn, guitar player for Candlebox, who actually did the uh, music for this podcast, Candlebox, their new album, Disappearing in Airports, debuted a few weeks ago, and it is just burning up the Billboard charts. So congrats to Candlebox. And everyone, thanks so much for tuning in. I really appreciate it. Uh, if you're liking what you're hearing, definitely go to iTunes and give a rating, uh, give a review for the Healthy, Wealthy, and Smart podcast. And as always, you can find me on Twitter at Karen Litzy NYC. Thanks for tuning in and enjoy the episode. Hey, Michelle. Hello, and welcome to the podcast. I'm so happy that you are on. Well, thanks, Karen. It's a, it's a pleasure to be here. And just so everyone knows, in a second, I'll have Michelle go in and talk a little bit more about himself. But um, quick story as to when Michelle and I met, we were talking a little bit about this before we went on the air. It was probably like seven years ago in New York City. We have mutual friends in common, the Boyds, um, Richard, and, right. Richard and Liz. And I feel like we met with maybe Bobby. Bobby's been on the podcast before, Bobby Capuccio. Um, it just kind of like, I feel like we just walked around the city for a couple, like no, like random, just random wandering. Yes. Is that right? Am I? Fair enough. 
And I, I, I think that is right. I think I got to know you on the streets of New York City. I think so, too. I think so, yeah. too. A very long time yeah. ago. Um, okay, so now that we've got that connection so everybody knows, um, tell the audience a little bit more about you and what you're doing, um, just so they can get to know you a little better. Well, um, educationally, I did all my schooling up at the University of Alberta in Canada in the exercise science department. So um, from there, I did a little teaching at the School of Health Sciences at Nate College in Canada. Um, and more uh, kind of to current, um, I about, gosh, gosh, maybe isn't that current. About 12 years ago, I created Viper, and we took it to market about, about six years ago. And... Um, and then recently, I am the founder of the Institute of Motion, IOM. And what we look at, Karen, is we look at different ways uh, to create health outcomes and health strategies and solutions uh, based upon all aspects of wellness. And so that's what our team is doing right now, which is extremely interesting. And in, within the Institute of Motion, what is that? Is that mainly for you know, body workers, PTs, trainers, where, what does that encompass? It's a great question. So our, our point of view is really of health. And so if you look at the definition of health coaching, it really is a multidisciplinary approach uh, where different allied health professionals become part of an organized structure so that an individual uh, can achieve greater aspects of well-being. And the coaching part would be that if it's done correctly, the individual is the one that is self-organizing these tasks because that leads to mastery and, and kind of this, um, this idea of, of fulfillment. And so uh, we, our audience is many different allied health professionals, but our subject matter is taking a look at health and well-being strategies. So performance, activity, the daily living, all of these things can fit underneath the umbrella of health. Mm -hmm. uh, but we talk about strategies and solutions and that education in relation to health outcomes. Got it. And what would be an example of, let's say, a strategy that you teach your prospective students to then bring to their clients? Uh, well, let me give you one that might be germane to a lot of listeners that like sports. And so the, our, our, to contextualize what we do, we take a look at you know, a lot of different intervention strategies for a young athlete. So in their 20s and 30s, they perform at a high level. Let's say they're professional athletes, so they perform at the highest level. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of times, uh, it may be oversimplistic to say, but a lot of times those same individuals that are achieving maximal performance at, in their 20s and 30s are broken in their 40s, 50s, and 60s, and so on. And so we look at that. We say, well, why would biology... Uh, achieve such a high level of performance at one stage of life only to be broken uh, and managing, you know, uh, dysfunction, let's say, for the remainder of their days. And so what we would look at is to say, okay, if by achieving a high performance outcome, I need to create uh, an intervention strategy, the physiological uh, aspects uh, of adaptation that I create by introducing that to some drills uh, and some periodization programming, that sets up uh, an internal network of, of communication. So cells communicate in certain ways. Uh, the tissue behaves in a certain way. And the adaptations of those imposed demands are what allows a person to achieve, in this case, high performance. Uh, sometimes they don't commingle, though, with long-term sustainability of an organism. And so those things are at odds. There's a rub between mm -hmm. the two. And so, you know, to kind of contextualize what we do, we would look at, 
the intervention strategies of, let's say, in this example, high performance, and how they commingle against, let's say, sustainability strategies of well-being, starting at the cellular level and then through the systems and ultimately the whole organism. So we want to make sure that we match considerations to all of these different factors, some of which commingle. And so are you, so let's say taking again this example of this sort of high performance sports athlete that's in their 20s and 30s um, playing at the highest level or close to the highest level. And if, are you sort of then taking that person and transitioning them from that into, into the next state or perhaps, which could be, or getting them when let's say maybe they're in their 40s or their 50s and they're looking for... Um, some help. Maybe they've had some issues in the past and they're looking for some help on, like you said, a strategy for for um, an exercise routine or, or a way of living that's going to be more conducive to where they are at that point. And, and the interesting part to that great question is that it, there is so many different inputs, as we all yeah, know, biology totally. has so many different inputs. Yeah. It's, it's how do we manage all these things? And so what we do is we say, okay, how can we consider what the prevailing uh, goal of the individual is, and what their readiness is, their physiological or tissue readiness is. And let me give you an example. So let's say I want greater cross-sectional area of a muscle. Well, I need, there's certain cell signaling pathways that I need to trigger in order to create muscle hypertrophy. Now, at the cellular level, they don't commingle with, um, let's say, aerobic pathways. And so I've got to choose. I either am going to create a cellular network pathway that creates uh, hypertrophy uh, or protein synthesis, and I will blunt my natural aerobic pathways within those, or do I achieve greater effects of, let's say, aerobic uh, pathways within the cell, and I diminish these signaling pathways that are going to grow my muscle. And so sometimes, again, I've got, it's, an, it's an, not an either or, but mm-hmm. it's one where these things are kind of competing against each other. And often what we might do for the average consumer is to say, listen, you may want to do both. You may have periods in your training that consider how to achieve a greater effect on the muscle size and ultimately the force generation capabilities of the muscle. But then we need to do some different forms of exercise so that we can create the right agency within the cell to create cell health, right? And sustainability of cell health, mm-hmm. right? So I'm speaking specifically to my mitochondrion. So the mitochondrion of the cell, they may, uh, you know, you might increase the concentration with more aerobic a- exercise. That doesn't do much for your, you know, force capabilities. Mm-hmm. And so we would look at those two and say, okay, those are two considerations that we must hold uh, as being important based upon the the person's goal, where they are in their natural cycle of life, uh, and what we need to consider in terms right. of intervention strategies. Right. And and also considering even going beyond the person's goals, but also looking at their values and kind of what they value most in their life and how can you use your training methods to weave through that? Because that's the hard. Like, you can do all of this um, training and things like that, but if it doesn't match the person's values, is it going to stick? Right, and if you don't message it properly, they're not. Right. They may not want to stick with it as well because it doesn't sure. show up for them. Because they're saying, "Well, how am I doing? How is this that, that you're getting me to do going to help me towards really what I want to do?" Mm-hmm. 
And and so that throughput must be coached and messaged appropriately. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and it, and if done well, then you know ultimately you're marrying both the message, which is uh, very consistent with let's say the needs and wants of the individual, with the necessary inputs of uh, strategies that can create the outcomes for the individual that yeah. they want. Right. No. Exactly. And, yeah. Go ahead. And, and, you know, it, it really is an interesting kind of idea because we are very much, I think, um, we are very much uh, influenced by what is going on in terms of the trends of the day. And so I was doing a talk for a club chain just the other day, and I walked in and I spoke to a, hand, a room full of individuals, trainers, and I said, you know, if I was 65 years old and I was sitting on a recumbent bike pedaling at uh, about 40 RPMs, which is very low cadence, mm -hmm. and my level of tension was three, which the resistance uh, is very low in that case, I would, you know, I said, what would the industry say about these, this individual? And if I was reading a newspaper while I was doing this and, you know, the hands went up and well, he, they're wasting the time and they're not getting mm -hmm. an effect of mm -hmm. the workout. And I thought, interesting comments. I mean, I, I think they were, they were very true in terms of what the industry would say. But at the very least, I'm creating a need for energy. And when we, we create a need for energy uh, at a low intensity, we spike AMPK, which is, is adenosine monophosphate kinase, which is an enzyme. And that enzyme sparks the production of, uh, of mitochondria. And if I plug more mitochondria in the cell and I'm 65 and I'm sitting on a recumbent bike, um, well, at the very least, I'm creating cell longevity because cell health and cell longevity is predicated on mitochondrial biodensity. And so, you know, it, it's interesting as a, as a thought experiment to say how many trainers out there would be comfortable standing beside somebody on a bike talking to them, whether pedaling at a low cadence, mm -hmm. at a relatively low intensity, and feel good about that. Most of the industry would say, no, 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 we've got to raise the intensity. Right. We've got to, you know, we've got to drive them a little bit harder. And although we can do that, isn't there a conversation to be had about whether that in intervention strategy is consistent, is safe, and is exactly what I at 65 might need for a recovery session or just cellular health? Yeah. No, I, I agree. I agree completely with that. And also taking into account, you know, a, a past medical history a, or the day, you know, people are different from day to day. Sure. And so I think it's perfectly fine, like you said, to stand next to that person and walk or talk them through, you know, being on, on the bike at level three, you know, yeah. or it could be someone, it could be someone in their, let's say thirties or forties, maybe who haven't exercised in a year, who haven't right. exercised in 10 years. Right. And so again, I don't think that there's anything wrong with injecting that light exercise whether it be a primer to move them forward or whether it be, like you said, the exercise that just injects some energy into the system to help grow at the cellular level. And you're still getting, don't forget, the heart rate's still going up. You're still getting a right. cardiovascular effect. And there's so many aspects of that that are important. Mm -hmm. you, know, the, you know, just in terms of the, the concentration of hemoglobin in the blood, the myoglobin in the muscle, um, as a recovery strategy for your young athletes, I mean, these are careful considerations that we paint structures around. Mm -hmm. And what we want to do is be less kind of dogmatic and ideological in our viewpoint and more encompassing and to say, well, if you want to burn the engine hot and do your 
know, high-intensity work, go for it. Uh, but if that's all I do, that also creates a risk long-term to heart, brain, and different physiological functions mm-hmm. um, that are well-characterized in the literature. And so we need to make sure that we are not necessarily forgetting about different intervention strategies um, that may seem innocuous or unbeneficial at first, uh, but when you do a deeper dive, they're incredibly important. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm, I'm really glad that you brought that up because I think a lot of people think that unless you are, you know, sore the next day, you know, you have that delayed onset <laughs> muscle soreness sure. or you're sweating or, you know, right. you're pushing yourself till you literally can barely walk out the door, then you haven't had a good workout. And right. you haven't, and or, think, or how about this? You haven't really made a change. You haven't, like you said, eh, it doesn't really make a difference. You're better off. Wh- who cares? Yeah. And we're, I think as the industry, we're guilty of this. And I think that we're also guilty that we allow the tail to wag the dog. In other words, the consumer walks in and says to me, man, I couldn't walk the next day. What mm-hmm. a great workout. Mm-hmm. And so they make that inference between I can't physical, you know, I can't move very well the next day. I mean, you know, I'm, I've got some, dongs and everything else that must be a good workout Mm -hmm. and it may be you know that may be the case that you had a really aggressive workout you challenged uh some you know some some um some stresses in the body Mm -hmm. and then the body adapts accordingly and and super compensation occurs because you know you degraded the uh the body with a, a big workout but that should be equally met with the next day when they came back and they said michelle we need a recovery session and you had us breathe and we regulate a parasympathetic tone, man, was that a good workout. Uh, but we're not quite there yet. But I invite the day, Karen, mm, where that yeah. is the case. You know, yeah, I yeah, pay yeah. your daily rate of whatever you charge an hour. And mm-hmm. I think, man, we did a, you know, a unloaded, uh, we did a recovery-based, parasympathetically-driven session to normalize the autonomic nervous system. Mm-hmm. And what we're doing there is we're regulating all the hormones, the catecholamines, all these neurotransmitters sure. in order to burn the engine hot again, the next workout. So, you know, these yeah. things need to be considered. I, I, and I agree. And I think when you said, Oh, you'll, I'll pay your daily rate. That's, that's the kicker, right? <laughs> yeah. That's right. the kicker because and, people are like, right. I'm not going to go and pay someone to help right. me breathe or to do this or to do these gentle right. exercises, I can quote unquote yeah. do that on my own. I go to, right. whether it be a trainer, your physical therapist, what have you, for like an ass kicking. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And, and again, I think you're right. It's, yep. it's, and that's sort of the culture around it, which, which I think needs to change a little bit. I agree with you. And I, I think it doesn't need to necessarily transition but it needs to encompass in other yeah. words you know you can go to your individual for an ass kicking that's great uh, but is you know what they want is results and they may yeah. not equate a light session to results mm-hmm. unless we paint it that way you know yeah. when you go in here and we normalize parasympathetic tone and you you get less cortisol and less you know whatever norepinephrine and everything yeah. circulating in your body then you're able to mobilize lipids to a greater degree, or you're able able to do this to a greater, whatever the case may be, dependent on their goal, what we are doing is we're managing the effects of uh, the interventions, the exercises, the drills that we're giving. Mm -hmm. And what's interesting is there is a cost to physiological adaptation. There's a cost 
sure. to what we do. And so we've got to understand that if we stress an individual out, what is that going to do in the long term? Because exercise is a physical Just, stress. Absolutely. And, and and we know what happens. Like if you read Why Zebras Don't Get Ulcers by Robert Sapolsky, yeah. you you know what happens when the body is in a constant stress, a constant stressful state. There's a lot of different systems within the body that just don't act the way that they should from anything from the reproductive system. I mean, think about people who are like women, for example, you know, who maybe are working out so much that they don't get their periods anymore. Right. That's, a, yeah. that's an adaptation of the body to a stressful situation. You know, right. And that that's for women. So amenorrhea for women. But how about, you know, erectile dysfunction for men? So yep. I can't sit down and watch 100%. a football game without seeing seeing, you know, 17 ads every hour for ED. <laughs> now, what's so interesting true. is that go back to your first year physiology, right? Yep. What does a male need to do to procreate? They need to, you know, get an erection and then they need to ejaculate. Now, getting an erection is parasympathetic dominant. Totally. Right? Ejaculating yep. is, symp is sympathetic dominant. So if I am having trouble maintaining or developing an erection as a man, what I have to do at some, some point is I've got to consider parasympathetic tone. 100%. And, and if I'm under high sympathetic drive because I've, I'm stressed at work and I'm type A and you know I, I drive my life hard because I want to achieve more, greater, happier, whatever, then I've got to recognize the consequence, long-term and short-term, to that kind of burning the engine hot, yep. so to speak, all the yep. time. Yep. And so that imbalance tips the scales towards sympathetic dominance. And totally. sympathetic dominance has a cascade of effects. And for your listeners, it's very easy. Just go to Wikipedia and put sympathetic tone in and see all the physiological effects mm -hmm. that ensue when a person's under high sympathetic drive. Mm -hmm. Now, that is a, bio a biological must for an individual. But long term, there is consequence to that. Yep. And Lots. you know that, that, that shows up in performance, i.e. athletic performance. It shows up in um, intimate performance, if you want to call it that. It uh -huh. shows up in ge general health. Absolutely. And by going through my high-intensity workout that day, the, the, the key question is, what net effect is that having on the organism itself when, in this example, I'm under a high tone of, of, of sympathetic uh, drive? Mm -hmm. So, Cardiovascular disease. You know, all that stuff can long term yeah. can be, you know, a result of that that being in that sympathetic drive or that stress condition for long term. And so maybe sure. if it were uh, explained to the client in that regards, then I think they would see the value of having those lighter days or those lighter sessions. Well, I think that's true. I think that's very true because you are quite, quite right when you say that, you know, if your hourly rate is 200 bucks an hour and I'm in New York City, I'm saying, wait a second, I'm paying you $200 an hour mm -hmm. for a light, you know, seemingly recovery uh, session or a, you know, a, a very deloaded, whatever you want to contextualize mm -hmm. in terms of adjectives, that particular session doesn't hold sway. But if, you know, you're making the, the, uh, you know, the, the, the picture, and you're painting the picture towards this is how it's affecting your physiology mm -hmm. such that you can get what you want out of it better, uh, then, you know, that's going to hold a little bit more sway with the audience. Yeah, I think so. It's all uh, about communication, but communicating the, the accurate information, right? Right. Not just making stuff right. up. And, 
Nobody, nobody right. wins when you make stuff up. Well, at, at a certain point in time, you back yourself into a corner, I yeah. think, as well. And we've, yeah. we've also got to recognize that biology is infinitely complex. And mm-hmm. so I think even in the, in the research, they're still trying to figure out the many mechanisms. But there are some that are more well understood. You know, mm-hmm. chronic inflammation is, mm-hmm. you know, is, you know, a dark side, a dark consequence to a life lived, right? Sure. Uh, acute inflammation is necessary. Chronic sure. cortisol is uh, a, a disruptor to physiology. Acute cortisol is actually very welcome for physiology, Absolutely. even for lipolysis, right? Even Absolutely. the burnt fat, short-term cortisol release is great. So we make these blanket statements, I think, and we're all guilty of it, where you know, cortisol is bad and inflammation is bad. And we, we would say, actually, not really. It's dosage, right? And It's know, dosage, it's dosage and timing right? and, and, and yeah. length. And that's a great way to communicate it to, you know, an audience where they understand dosage and timing as it relates to medicine, but they don't really understand that as it relates to stresses of exercise. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you wouldn't take a whole uh, bottle full of, of you know, aspirin at one time mm-hmm. uh, and you wouldn't time it when you're doing other things. And so right. the right. same thing is true with, with exercise. It's all about dosage and it's all about timing. Absolutely. Absolutely. And those are key considerations. A hundred percent. And uh, boy, this conversation went off into a spot I didn't even think it was going to, but I like it. I like it. Um, so let's talk about, I think, another part of kind of continuing in, a, in our talk of strategies for clients. And this was kind, kind of a, a conversation that I saw on Facebook yesterday. And it was talking all about the use of the word functional. And you sort of mm. almost touched upon it um, a couple of minutes ago, but I kind of want to go into that a little bit more. So uh, you hear now everything from functional anatomy courses to functional training to functional this. Everything is functional. And I, I feel like that was a trend in fitness that started, I don't know, you would know better than me, maybe, I don't know, 15 years ago, 10, 15 years ago maybe? Yeah, that, that, would, be, yeah, that would be about right. Right? Yeah. And so, so, some were talking about it before, but yeah, I think it came into the regular vernacular about 10 to 15 years ago would be yeah. accurate. Yeah. And so, uh, what is your take on that? I would love to hear your take on that, the whole functional, because it's like, I remember at one point, it's like you throw somebody on a BOSU ball and you're functional. Do you know what right. I'm saying? It's like, how is that functional? Right. And, and I feel <laughs> like the word has kind of maybe lost its original intention of what it was maybe 10, well, 15 years ago. Yeah, and let me give you my perspective on on this whole evolution because I think, like anything else, a term a, a term is very important to contextualize what it is that we're doing, right? Twenty or thirty years ago, if you went to the the gym and said, "I'm doing core training," most of the people would look at you and say, "What?" Right. Uh, but now, but now it's widely recognized as being something that's important. What is it? That's up for debate. Uh, but it's a it's a landmark to what we're doing. And so just like core, this idea of functional became more well known in starting in the late eighties and then kind of continuing on from there with a bunch of pioneers that really what they did is they said, okay, we are, you know, if we look at the evolution of exercise, right. Or physical activity and exercise or resistance training, resistance training 300 years ago was I lifted a bale of hay and I moved it in a wagon and it was infinitely variable and it was different loads of different, you know, angles and I would I would self-organize the task and away I went and then as we went through the industrial revolution 
we mechanized uh, production, but we also mechanized the way we exercise as well. We came into structures that had four walls. Uh, we went into uh, a very mechanistic approach to exercise, which was very linear. So one, one plane of motion dominant. And then because of that, we were able to create some techniques around certain lifts and certain uh, protocols within the gym. Now, I'm not going to sit here and say that that's bad at all, uh, because what we do is we respect one plane of motion. We can increase uh, load. So load and degrees of freedom have this inverse relationship. As load goes up, your degrees of freedom or, or movement choice goes down. And mm-hmm. that's on purpose, right? So I wouldn't take a, a squat or a deadlift, and I wouldn't want to three-dimensionalize that in the name of exercise, because at a certain point with a load, that becomes a, little uh, dangerous. a very rich... Right, a very risky proposition for the body. And so what it allows us to do is it allows us to load and respect one plane of motion, increase the load, and then we can access different fiber types for different adaptations. So type 2 fibers, which are more prone to hypertrophy, Mm -hmm. and all these types of things ensue when we can go through what we're going to call the gym strength training protocols. And they're very good. We welcome them all the time. We at least consider them all the time. So the departure away from this kind of freedom of motion on the farm to this more regimented motion in the gym was our first kind of foray into the structured exercise. Everything before that was activity of daily living, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so structured exercise became to permeate our culture. And then in the 80s and 90s, and of course currently now, it is not only a staple for most individuals, it is where they get most of their movement, which is interesting because it's completely shifted from oh, a person went to the gym to do this exercise, but they move throughout their day, to I don't move throughout the day at all, but I go to the gym to move. Mm -hmm. And so because this evolution was occurring, there was a throwback to, hey, wait a second, you know, know, before we went into the gym, our ancestors moved in three dimensions, they moved in all these different positions. That's kind of more functional training because it's function based upon what we were designed to do biomechanically and and biologically. And so there was these early kind of adopters and these voices in our industry that said, this is functional training. It's three-dimensional. We can organize tasks in odd positions, uh, and it's infinitely variable. And then they're they're looking at tissue behaviors because of this. Uh, And then once that trend started to emerge and picked up steam, of course, you said it perfectly, a lot of people then just hitch their wagon and say, okay, well, if I do certain protocols, that, I'm going to call that functional too, right. because functional is is a name that the industry or the consumer knows, and so you know you get some of that in there, and 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 so that makes it kind of uh, more confusing because as a customer or consumer, you look at that and say, well, what is functional now? It seems like everything's functional now, right? And, and then that does it start to lose its value? I think is the question. Yeah, it starts to morph. It's like the core, mm-hmm. right? You know, right. core core can fix. Core can fix anything. Just train your core and you get better eyesight. You, you know, train your core and you can pay, pay <laughs> That's pay a leap. Taxes, that's a whatever. big leap. <laughs> <laughs> right. But that's the thing is that we make these huge inferences based on the value and the importance of something that has tremendous kind of cachet within the industry. Uh, and I think functional is there too. And, um, and so, you know, going back and hearkening back to what we did, we look at biology. Biology loves variability. Mm-hmm. So if we're looking at function from the kind of the, the roots of it, we might say biology loves variability. Heart rate variability is a measure of systemic readiness, right? The more variability to a certain point that biorhythms of the heart have, uh, that is an indication of system readiness, right? If, if your beat count is very static and percussive, 
that may be an, uh, an indication in that moment of a stressful state, right? Which is interesting. So in a stressful state, your body goes to more of a predetermined rhythm and less mm-hmm. variab- variability, mm-hmm. right? Interesting, right? So and we also know that if you have kids, hey, get those kids to play a wide swath of sports when they're young because, sure. you know, that's going to set up your neural net for motor variability because new and novel creates neurogenesis and synaptogenesis and all these yep. other things, right? Yep. And so we know that new and novel creates these different motor tags or kind of, you know, these, these different highways for the nervous system to grow into. Uh, mechanical variability is also important as well, right? So, you know, the, the farmer that lifts load an infinite number of patterns, not doing two repetitions in a row, is infinitely strong or infinitely strong, is very strong. Right. Um, you know, you shake, you shake a farmer's hand, they're strong body Why? And so there is this kind of this throwback to creating different environments within a fitness context that can facilitate that similar result of variability. Um, and we've organized it through something that we at IOM call the 4Q training model. And that's just a way to organize stresses in the body in different considerations. Are they linear or are they three-dimensional? Are you loading the body with external load or are you working with your body weight? Mm-hmm. And those two continuums, if you put them in a, in a plus shape, form four quadrants, just like mm-hmm. a plus sign. Forms. Mm-hmm. And they infer, you know, are you doing loaded linear training or are you doing unloaded linear training? Are you doing loaded movement training? Or are you doing unloaded movement training? And depending on themes like strength or recovery or activation, you can choose different drills within each of these four quadrants, mm-hmm. right? So I'll give you a great example. Sure. If I'm doing loaded linear, that means I have some sort of external load on my body and I'm going in a linear path. It's predetermined. It's one plane of motion. And it's easy for the motor system to kind of, you know, get, get its hand around. Right. So for, say, as an okay, example, that would be... Like a, well, great. Go as, ahead. as an example, in the strength continuum, which most people would know strength right away, yeah. in the strength field, if I said, hey, hey, trainer, give me a loaded linear strength drill, they'd say a loaded squat, like a yeah. back squat or yeah. a deadlift or a bench press. Or, mm-hmm. And we'd say, great, what's the benefit of all that? Well, you can jack up the weight and you can, you know, you can activate some, some key muscle fiber typing to, uh, to create a physiological outcome. Awesome. Mm-hmm. Okay, and if I say, well, what's a Metcon drill that's loaded linear, right, which is for us the upper left-hand quadrant, and they'd say, man, a Metcon drill that's loaded and linear, and we'd say, yeah, you know, of all the cardio pieces in your gym, which ones would be loaded and linear, repeated patterns in a linear way? And they'd say, well, probably your rower and your bike, and we'd say, exactly, and in mm-hmm. the Exercise science field, we call them a cycle ergometer and a rowing ergometer. Mm-hmm. And ergo means, you know, work and meter means to measure. So you're measuring work in a bike with wattage or in a rower, right? And so that way you can actually jack up the resistance and you can't really allow, uh, you can't really allow um, momentum to ensue like you can a run. And so what you do is your heart has to beat in a car, in a high aerobic way so if the beat count goes up mm-hmm. and it has to push blood against the higher total peripheral resistance carrier because now i'm pushing against the resistance mm-hmm. so let's say i'm on the bike and you've got about level 15 now your leg muscles have to work sure well guess what you know they're contracting so your total peripheral resistance may go up same thing mm-hmm. for a rower right you've got mm-hmm. to drive that ore into the water or in this case you know into the the, the, the fan machine, if you're yeah. doing a right and that actually increases total peripheral resistance. So that TPR goes up, and then the adaptation to the heart goes up. 
right? So in time, if you were an athlete that did nothing but that, you would get left ventricular hypertrophy. Mm. And if you're not ready for it yet, that's harder on the heart. So, you know, if you're stratifying risk and one of the risks that you're stratifying is heart, you know, a weak heart for whatever reason, right? You may want to think twice yeah, about you, a you loaded may want to linear mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Versus, versus an unloaded linear drill, which would be running on a treadmill. You're unloaded, it's linear. And you might say, well, what's, what's an unloaded movement or multi-planar training drill that's cardio? Well, that would be running out in the forest because now you're varying the lines of stress. You're changing direction all the time. You're running around trees, different up and down. You know, if you're really running on a trail that's it's uh, you know not got a lot of pavement to it. You're going to be running over rocks and you know, sure. You're going to you're going to change the the stress profile, and we would call that the unloaded movement or multiplanar training quadrant. And so all of these different quadrants have unique benefits, and all it's do all that we need to do is to consider each one of these quadrants, match the benefits to the goal and the physiological readiness of the individual. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, and the health of the individual. And then the health, yeah. Yeah. And, the health the and, yeah. and I think where the functional thing, and that sounds functional, okay? <laughs> that sounds functional. Sure. You know where, what you see when you go on YouTube is like these, those crazy things where they've got bands attached to all four limbs and they're, you know, crawling around and moving in, in just outrageous positions Mm-hmm. with all of this stuff attached to them. That's what you see when you when you Google this kind of stuff. And and, and yeah. that's where it has the pendulum swung too far in those individuals trying to... Or is it just like, look at how cool I could be. I can do all this weird stuff. Well, you know, I think... Let me try to answer that from the perspective of biology, mm-hmm. right? So biology would look at that and say, okay, here's what I might like about that. I might like that at the right time, in my, you know, in my evolution, uh, that may be the variety that I'm looking for so that the, 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 the body can remodel, the body can adapt according to a new or newer input. That may have kind of biological rigor behind it. Um, if there's too much motor complexity and I'm trying to make it too, you know, eye-catching, let's say, mm-hmm. and it's inappropriate for my individual because neurologically they can't, you know, they can't coordinate a, a movement task of that complexity, mm-hmm. that's going to be confusion and that won't, you know, necessitate an outcome that is positive. It'll be right. disruptive for the system. And so here's what I might suggest to the listeners is that when you look at all these things in the, in the you know, internet land out there, Try to, to try to make an assessment on a couple of different key buckets. Mechanically, is there an appropriate amount of stress to the body? Is it too little? Is it too much? Right? Neurologically, is it too complex or is it not complex enough? And then metabolically. And metabolically means, you know, are we burning the engine too hot or is there enough variability in the metabolic demands of a series of exercises that I'm putting together that gives the uh, the the you know, it gives biology enough variability to work with. And I think if we start to attach those buckets, those Mm -hmm. are justification buckets to it. Uh, Because the body does like variety, but too much variety is just as detrimental as too little variety. So again, it's about uh, timing and dosage and exposure, really. It's all about assessing a, is this the right intervention strategy for Mm -hmm. the person that, you know, I'm dealing with? And might, might there be a regression strategy that, can get everything I want and can be a lot safer from one of these justification buckets. Sure. So, yeah, to, to, 
to prescribe an exercise, which again, as a reminder, it is stress, right? Mm-hmm. Without a very clear understanding as to why I'm doing this and what outcome is it going to have on this person, this physiological entity and its readiness, that is the key question that we ought to be asking ourselves every time we come in contact with an individual is how am I going to facilitate what I want in a safe and repeatable manner mm-hmm. such that you know I can drive the physiological outcomes that I want, uh, but I'm considering this person's readiness. Yeah. And that that doesn't have to be the you know the the what the eye-catching kind of sir I'll say the quote unquote circus act that we see in certain videos mm-hmm. that could be you know putting someone under a too much load in a squat <laughs> when yeah. they're not ready for it absolutely right yeah 100%. and so you know what we want to do is we want to cut through the noise of ideology and through the noise of dogma i go to a, a seminar i learn these techniques and then i apply these techniques without question without consideration uh and blindly to every everybody i meet and I throw the old out and I just adopt the new. That's probably not the best strategy for mm-hmm. long-term um, success in terms of uh, what we do as health coaches. Yeah, agreed. Agreed. Well, I have to tell you, I wanted to talk about so much more, but we're, we're, we're kind of at the end of our, of our time here, which is such a bummer, unless we like split it into like three podcasts, which... Maybe I'll just have you come back in another time. Sure, um, anytime. But before we sign off, is there anything, any sort of big takeaways? I mean, I feel like you you had a lot of big takeaways throughout this conversation. But anything that you want the listeners to kind of come away with, if you want to kind of condense it into your most important points. Oh, and then we have one more thing to talk about, too. Okay. Uh, I think just in terms of a closing remark, you know, I, health is, you know, a very multifaceted uh, thing. And there are many considerations that go into a healthy organism from the cell all the way on up. Um, considerations of what we do in the gym from a, you know, from a mechanistic point of view. Uh, there are societal social things that have a critical aspect on health. There are mental aspects that have a critical aspect on health. Uh, so all these things commingle into what we describe as health. Here's what's something that's interesting that I might share with your yeah. your readers or uh, your uh, listeners. Um, despite or beyond chronological age, chronological age, the biggest predictor of health was self-reported health. In other words, other than your age being a, a certain metric, right? Mm-hmm. The biggest consideration on your health. And, you know, your, your day-to-day health, your physiological health was self-reported health. In other words, if a person thought they were healthy, that had a huge impact on their health. If they thought they were unhealthy, that had a huge impact on their health. And so, you know, what goes into a healthy organism are so many factors. Oh, and, um, absolutely. and it, it's not just necessarily what we do in the gym or what we do as a physical activity, structured physical activity uh, phenomenon. It has you know, ties to the mental, emotional, social aspects of what we do. Yeah, 100%. Everything, like, you know, we say, I talk about this a lot when we talk about pain, but but there are so many inputs that go into the system, and then the brain has to make sense of all those inputs, right? And right. and then that's, is, is what regulates the body. Right. And so... 
no matter all, all the things that you have outlined today are a fraction of the inputs that that go into a system. That that is one hundred percent true. And there, you know, and I think that even if you ask, you know, a lot of researchers that are looking at what's happening at the level of, uh, you know, of the smallest unit of our body, what's happening at the at the level of the cell it's very difficult for them to really with complete certainty know what's going on because there are so many different aspects of, of, of co-mingling. Yep. Absolutely. And that's, that's the beauty of the human body though. Right. Um, (laughs) and speaking, speaking of which, before we end this, um, uh, I want you to talk a little bit about, um, the anatomy live, which is June 10th to the 12th in Denver. Um, or else I think Liz will kill us both. So um, go ahead and talk a little bit about that and then tell people where they can find you if they have any more questions. Yeah, so for those individuals that want to experience uh, two days in a cadaver lab, so we're looking at tissues that that you can articulate. In other words, we start with uh, a fully intact body and then um, we go through how to prepare um, you know, this, this discovery of anatomy. And for many people, it is an emotional experience. Uh, it is very much an intellectual experience. Um, but we first start with the respect of what it is um, to donate one's, you know, uh, structure to the analysis of others or for the analysis of others. And then from there, it's basically a three-day event uh, where it's held in Boulder, Colorado, and for the first two days, we're in the lab, and we're t- taking a look at not only tissues, but uh, the, the anatomy of the tissues, the behavior of the tissues, and we're, you know, everybody has an opportunity to get up close and personal with, with uh, cadaver dissection. And from there, the third day is more in a physical training environment. So we go into the gym, uh, and we talk about how to prepare tissues effectively for, um, for any type of intervention, whether it be activities of daily living, whether it's just how to prepare the tissues for good health, or whether to prepare the tissues for um, a high degree of performance training or a high aspect of, of, of training. And so first two days are in the lab. The last day is more practical in, in terms of, you know, now that you've seen the structure up close, here's what you do to prep it accordingly uh, based on its tissue behaviors. So it really is an opportunity for people of all disciplines of, of well, uh, health and wellness to be able to, uh, to take a look at anatomy and then um, look at some strategies to, uh, to make sure that anatomy behaves correctly. Very cool. And if people want to find out more about that and more about you, where can they go? The best place is www.instituteofmotion.com, instituteofmotion.com. Great. And that has everything on there, right? It'll have everything on there, yep. Super. All right. Well, Michelle, thank you so much for taking the time out of your schedule to come on. I appreciate it. It was a great talk. David's self was right. I should have you on. <laughs> um, and I just want to thank you again. This was great. Uh, Karen, it was a pleasure. I appreciate your, uh, your reaching out and your time as well. All right. Everybody, thanks for listening. Have a great week. Stay healthy, wealthy, and smart. <laughs>